What's up, y'all? I'm Rico. I use he, him pronouns, and I want to welcome you to another mini-sode of the What We Need Now podcast by Greenpeace USA. Look, we hear a lot about the impacts of the intersecting crises of COVID, economic upheaval, white supremacy, and climate change-fueled devastation that disproportionately impacts people of color and poor communities. And rightfully so. We definitely need to hear a lot more about that. But what we don't hear enough about is the amazing work that Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color are doing to not just navigate these crises, but to build long-term solutions rooted in their own needs and traditions. So that's what we're talking about today. And we've got Kern Collymore in the studio. Well, not in the studio. It's still COVID. I'm, nobody's here. Um, but Kern is dope. He's an Afro-Caribbean from Trinidad and Tobago who moved from New York to his partner's community on the Navajo Nation. Together, they co-founded Six World Solutions, a consultancy that works on things like solar generators, rainwater catchment systems and other forms of relief for Diné producers to deal with the dual impacts of COVID and long-term drought. Kern is a partner of a strong Diné woman who has blessed him with two beautiful children, which you will definitely be hearing in the recording. Uh, He loves spending time growing food, educating his children on the land and hanging out with his animals, especially his pig, Sweet Pea. And he's hanging out with us today. So Kern, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Um, How you doing? Feeling pretty good. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing. And I know you're doing a ton of work. Um, so we will definitely not cover all of it. And just to start with, can you just say your, like, your name and pronouns? Um, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Cool. Um, Kern Collymore, and I go by he, him pronouns. Awesome. So what are you working on right now? Like what is about to start um, down in your yeah. community in the next week? Yeah, for sure. So right now um, we have the sustainable housing kick that's starting up next week. We're building this thing. It's called an Earthship, and again, Earthship is just like this this blanket term for houses that are built using tires. So instead of bricks or drywall and wood, you know, two by fours, uh, tires are what kind of like holds that house together. So you take tires and you pound them full of dirt, and it becomes like a little, not a little, big. It becomes a big brick. And then you stack them and you stack the tires into whatever shape or design that you'd like for your house. Our Earthship is a little unique because it's, uh, again, us being out here in the indigenous lands of Navajo Nation, uh, Denebikea, um, it follows this Hogan style model. So a Hogan is this eight sided uh, traditional Navajo housing. And why did you choose like the structure materials such as tires instead of earthing sure. clay structures or anything like that? Yeah. So there's lots of different types of sustainable housing. Waste management on the reservation is close to non-existent. Uh, there are definitely sites where you can bring things, but some people, you know, have to travel 40, 50 miles one way to throw their trash out. So illegal trash dumps are a huge thing. So our whole thing, when we moved back to, to my, my partner's community, was just how do we address these issues like in a multifaceted way? So to us, this sustainable housing technique of utilizing these earthships allowed us to take these things, where things when I say things, these tires that are polluting our communities, and and find a way to um, to to upcycle them. Uh, so that that's that's one of the reasons why we decided for this. Um, this tire bale, this earthship uh, style housing. And uh, yeah, in the past two years, we have literally collected over 500 tires within a 10 mile radius from our Jeez. house. So um, yeah, I mean, as, as a project was getting going, we literally had people come up to where we were to either dump off tires or ask us if we can come by their house and pick up stuff. 
And then also it utilizes glass bottles. It utilizes just a bunch of materials that we currently don't have ways of recycling, right? Mm -hmm. All the glass that you use goes to like a trash dump. I mean, I know that there's, again, there are other people, small scale that are trying to figure out things. Same thing with the tires, right? There, there are places where, where your used tires will go to and they sit there in landfills that are miles wide. And yeah, those things are really dangerous and, and, at the end of the day, yeah, we feel like this is a, a meaningful way of, of utilizing those those um, discarded materials. I, d- I definitely agree. I mean, I think the fact that it's solving multiple problems <laughs> with with one solution, you know, um, knowing that you're paying folks to to learn these skills, you're providing housing, and then at the same time, you're solving another problem, which is waste, um, which is really yeah. really dope. I, I just want just really quickly, I just want to say when we say like paying folks, we're, we're paying like local folks. Um, I think one of the biggest things about like um, poor communities, indigenous communities, black communities is when it comes to these type of projects is always like, like volunteerism. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's not the same as in these upper class or these like middle class things where people aren't worried about paying phone bills or aren't worried about paying rent. Right. You can go out and volunteer at the community garden all you want when you don't have bills to pay. Right. right. But Verizon isn't going to take a bushel of corn for your phone bill. <laughs> Right. right. So, so I, I think that for me, it's like really big that like we are paying local people to come out and engage and be a part of these things. Absolutely. No, I, I 100% agree. Um, one of my like uh, one of my favorite jobs that I've had prior to Greenpeace was um, was teaching in an after school program where we paid the kids to come to the after school program because it's like if they weren't in school, they would go do something for money, whether that's a job or whether that's like in the street and. I, I'm I'm a big advocate for if you're gonna like yeah. do those like directly impacted work and you can get folks involved, why not pay them, especially yeah. for uh, black and brown folks? Yeah, I just say I think it just creates this kind of like self fulfilling f- prophecy that like people of European descent like to like do in our communities, like oh their own community members don't want to like you know mm. don't want to help in the garden or their own community members don't want to help build you know build these things and it's like again as I said before I love this line but like Verizon doesn't take like a bushel of corn as payment. So as much as I'm in the community garden, right? Like if I still have a phone bill to pay, I still have, you know, like food to buy. So I think, again, I think it's really important to like, when we look at indigenous communities and we look at poor communities and we look at communities of color, like how are we going to be bringing resources, giving those community resources? So, right. yeah. So I want to just kind of like take a step back real quick. How did, how did Six World Solutions come about? I know that you, you know, you and your wife moved back to her community. Um, but what made yeah. you decide that like this is where you wanted to put your efforts? So my partner has always been about working and helping her, her community. So when I met her in college, she was going for international indigenous policies with a focus on human rights. Mm-hmm. And I was just like this, you know, rugby playing having a good time in college kind of, of person. But, you know, my background personally, my, my dad was one of those like, like company men, you know, and, and he's a, a, he's the kind of person who's like a, when he was growing up, he always wanted to be an accountant. And for me, like I cannot fathom that, right? I cannot fathom a, a little kid wanting to be an accountant. And this is the type of person like my dad is. He's always wanted to be an accountant. So, you know, he, he used to work at JP Morgan Chase and he worked there for a long time. He gave a lot of his life to that company and he missed a bunch of things I mean, obviously working for me to be able to have the life that I had, I, you know, I was like one of five black kids at my, you know, like 
in the school that I went to, my high school and all those things. And my dad definitely worked hard for us to be where we were. But there are a bunch of times when I was just like, I remember like one time, like I broke this record and I was, I was like, I know for a fact, like my dad's not in the stands here because hmm. he's at work. Right. And then I have like, like other kids, dads, like congratulations, congratulating me and all those things. So then like following this lifestyle and, you know, went out to Columbia, this like Ivy league university to, to like, you know, be better and all these things. And after we graduated, my partner and I, we had a son and we were still living in New York and she still hated it, but I was trying to, you know, do my interviews at um, JP Morgan Chase and, and all those things, Goldman Sachs. And I remember one morning I was going to work on the train and it was like about 6.30 in the morning. I left before my son woke up. And if, if anyone's ever ridden the train in New York City during rush hour, it was just this like monotonous droning in a car filled with like maybe 150 people in this one train car and it's dead quiet. No one's making eye contact. Everyone's looking down. And then I started like, you know, it hit me then. It's like, what am I doing this for? Right. If I'm trying to like make a better life for myself, for my son, for my family, and I don't even see him before he wakes up. And then by the time I'm back home, he's sleeping again. Like, what am I really doing? Right. And that's when it hit me. Like I, I am trying to fulfill this thing that's been taught to me about like what success is. Right. And it's like, like, again, like this, like Wolf of Wall Street and like making this money and like, right. Like, like having these deals and all those things. And I just, and I just realized, you know, like that's not something that we want to do. And as I said before, my partner has never wanted to do it. So we decided to um, move back to her community and, and start addressing these issues that we already saw that a bunch of communities of color are facing, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that, that's kind of like how Six World started. As with a bunch of college educated like young people who moved back to the communities, we thought we had like the answers, but we started just going to community meetings and sitting there and just like listening, listening to what people are talking about. And a lot of times when you have these kind of um, conversations about poor communities or, or, or um, uh, less well-off communities, it's just like, there's this kind of like concept of like the people there don't know. Mm -hmm. And then as we were sitting in these meetings, we were realizing like, you know, it's not that people don't know. It's that we aren't being able to access the resources to address these issues. So the resources that we have here are to address like small things like um, I, I, yeah, I guess they call it band-aid solutions, right? It's just like right. these little, like little band-aids you're put, putting on things and you're not really able to address what's going on. So when we started seeing this, we started realizing that we have to open up the ways to be able to allow our communities to have more access to these resources. Right. And I, and I think what you said is, is spot on. Like you have to listen to, to find the solutions that come from the community. I think the Earthship is a great example using a structure that, is, is from the community is, is something that people have a relationship to as derived from their own ancestry, as opposed to like, here's this thing that we cooked up in some yeah. other place and it should work for you and it'll work for every community everywhere. I think that's, I think that's a really for awesome sure. way to approach it. And, and you know, there's a, a little bit deeper history of this, um, of the, of this earthship is, you know, it's called a Soho is, is one of our names. It's like the Trinidad Soho earthship. And the Soho part is a, a, an homage to this, um, designer, a Navajo designer named Charles Cambridge, um, who came up with this um, solar Hogan design, right? So again, the Hogan is just like a studio, I guess in, in the contemporary terms, it's like a, an eight-sided studio structure. So it doesn't have a bathroom, doesn't really have bedrooms. Um, so Charles Cambridge came up with this and he extended it to make it more 
um, contemporary. So he added like a bathroom, there are bedrooms, there's a living room, but the Hogan is still center of this building. Hmm. And now our design has come, come and just added on to what we learned from Charles Cambridge. Um, and so, so just a little bit of like the history of where that's coming from. And, and you talk about things being from the own communities. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of times that we don't realize, right? Like I was at a conference a couple years ago and we we're talking about um, diabetes in poor communities and it's all these doctors from across the world. And my thing was like, I guarantee you there are people in our communities who care more about these issues than you guys do because they're actually losing community members. Mm -hmm. So when like these like fancy doctors come in and they start their practices and they do something for a couple of years and then they get burnt out or they want to go back to their grandkids or they're going to retire and go to the Caribbean, right? Like, and then they leave those resources leave too. Right. But when that doctor comes in and he finds out who is doing the work already, and then they start to support that work when they leave, that work still gets done. And that's one of the things I feel like is really like a, um, I guess like, like, like guess it's like fire in me is like when these groups come in and as opposed to like listening or learning or trying to see who's already doing it, it's like, I'm going to start something new. And I think that, 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 you know, this across the board, um, so sure the earthship stuff, but across the board, when it comes to like activism, there's a history there. Like in every community, there are people who've been doing it before us. I'm not the first one to care about water in my community. I'm not the first one to care about like recycling or trash, you know, and there are people who've been here before me and you have like, look at see like what work are they doing and if they're still doing the work and all those different things. I guess thinking about the myriad crises that we're sort of dealing with right now. And I know the Navajo Nation has been hit especially hard with some of those, like we're talking about COVID, we're t- we got climate impacts, we got economic downturn and all those things. Like what are some of the responses that you've seen or what are some of the initiatives that you've seen that have come from the community of how people have responded to all of these things? So as a bunch of people have been saying, I think that COVID has just shown a light on issues that have been marinating for a long time. So absolutely, at the beginning of COVID, the Navajo Nation was really hard hit just because of the lack of access to readily accessible like water infrastructure. But it's not just like, it's, so it's, yeah, again, it's complicated, right? Because when you say lack of access to water, there are people who are absolutely fine with not having water in their house, right? Like that's just like this like newer age thing. It's the lack of access to water that we know is is, is potable, is, is good for drinking. I was thinking this yesterday, I was drinking, uh, as I was driving, how cool it is that in almost every single Navajo community, there is at least like one water source where you like anyone could just go to like this well and pump it. And I'm thinking about how like when, like growing up in New York City or right like like I, I there's nothing like that right like there's no place you could just go and like like access water or like right like Bed Stuy has like their water source and then like right like then like um, Canarsie has like their water source there's nothing like that. Um, and the thing is like making sure that those those water sources that we have access to are potable. And that's the problem. Like right now we're drinking water that that's like is contaminated with like heavy metals, right? And it's contaminated with heavy metals from like uranium mining, a, a lot of like coal, oil, arsenic in the water from the byproducts of the tailings of these things. So when, when you're digging for coal or when you're digging for uranium, like, yeah, you have your big uranium chunk. That's good. But all those little pieces end up not being being viable and you, you throw them someplace. And when you throw them someplace and it rains, that sucks on top of those little pieces, goes down into the water table, then people start getting sick, 
right? Wow. Um, so when we start again, like blaming, at least in my mind, looking at and, and we're talking about community members, just these people are too like backwards to they don't want running water or they don't like want these things. It's not that they don't want it. It's that the lifestyle that they live, they don't feel the need, like they need to go down those those roads. But the importance of these government entities being able to provide that most basic assurance of the resources that you're utilizing are are good, are viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think a lot of the stuff that you've seen um, on the Navajo Nation, like, is not to not to use the buzzword of scalable, but like, are, are there solutions that you've seen work there that you think other communities could adopt in their own way? Um, and what are some of those, if so? For sure, I think it's a good question. And, and you know, you, you asked before about the different types of um, um, things I saw going on, and I kind of went off on a, on a side tangent. But you know, th- there's been, I think the beautiful thing is just these mutual aid groups led by just community people have sprung up just because of people addressing these needs. And I think that that's been the most beautiful thing. And then the way that, that other people have been able to come through and help support those things. So in terms of scalability, I would say that the, that the thing that is scalable is how you go in and listen to community and how you like allow them to utilize the resources. So if you are like a big fancy org that has all the access to, I don't know, let's just say water filters, right? Going in and listening to the community and then allowing them to utilize those resources the way that they want. And and I think that one of the big things here in terms of like nonprofits, in terms of like government agencies, is that the, um, when they have resources, you have to utilize it the way that they want, right? Um, They'll like coming to your community and tell you that you have to like, you have to do it this way. Or one of the big things that we've been hitting recently, since we've been working on this um, water filtration project, is uh, how many people would it impact? We're in the Navajo Nation, you know, uh, on the reservation. I think we have about one hundred and fifty thousand people. So let's say you have a smaller community of about five thousand people, and then even smaller yet, you have like a, a a group where they're accessing this one well. So you might have um, 50 families using that one well. So when I'm trying to come and take half a million dollars to work on this one well, but then according to you, like this 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 org, that one well is only helping 50, 50 families. That's not enough, right? For them, it's too much resources going to one tiny community. But when you look at it, you're able to scale that out, right? So if it works in this community, that means it will work the way that I'm looking at it, if it works in one tiny community, it could potentially work in lots of other tiny communities. But when you start talking about how many people does it impact, that they don't, it doesn't matter how much it scales out to other tiny communities because this project only impacts 50 families. So things like that, I think, are like really good ways we can look at expanding our criteria when we're working in, in small communities, but also like allowing people to be able to, to, to I guess, like spread their wings, be able to like get their resources and, and fly. And I, and I think also, you know, something that I keep hearing come up in some of your answers is this, like, uh, reducing the dependency on these outside entities, you know what I mean? And, as opposed yeah. to, like, reaching out to some outside group that comes in with their own ideas, and then you need them again when that runs out or when that money yeah. runs out by actually, like, working within the community to come up with solutions that fit the yeah. community, that are from the community, making sure folks have the skills that they can train other people, then yeah. you just are, are less and less dependent on these outside entities to come in, which is, which is huge. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about the solar water filtration? I know we haven't really hit on that, but you kind of like alluded to it. So I do want to know a little bit more about like, sure. how that works or, or, or yeah. what exactly you're doing with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, on the reservation, uh, 
heavy metal contaminations is, is a serious issue. So we have a, a, a lot of communities, not only on Navajo, but also on Hopi, that are dealing with like arsenic in the water, arsenic, lead, radionuclides, such as, uh, you know, radium, all these different things. And as I said before, not only is there a long history of hard rock mining, right? If you if, if the viewers and the guests have time to check it out, the majority of power plants, coal mines, those are on either poor people's like territories or indigenous peoples, right? Mm-hmm. So like one of the largest tailing piles in, in the US is on, on native lands, right? Mm-hmm. And as I keep on saying, like the Navajos aren't mining uranium Right, like Navajos aren't the ones who like were bombing Japan and stuff. Right, this these communities are definitely the ones facing the impacts of that mining. Right, and they're called downwinders and all these things, and even to this day, still facing those impacts. So our water sources are really contaminated. So the next step of us understanding that we have contaminated water is doing something about it. So there's a group at the University of Arizona that's been working on the solar nanofiltration project. We connected with them about two years ago and, you know, very much like intellectuals putting together something that they think would work for the community. And we we were luckily able to collaborate with them and bring out some people from the reservation who do work in solar and, and you know, like learn as well as adjust. So taking these systems out to community members and, and having them say, this isn't going to work because of this, right? So this filter filters out lots of heavy metals. It filters out bacteria in the water. Heavy metal in water is different than bacteria in water because bacteria in water is kind of like a particle in the water, whereas heavy metals is like literally a part of the water, right? So bacteria is easy to get out, but the things like the, things like the, the lead and the arsenic and the uranium is so much harder. And then when we already are living in communities that don't have access to running water, they don't, 30% of the Navajo Nation doesn't have access to running water. Um, another 30% doesn't have access to electricity. And that study was done in a, a, on a section of the reservation that actually has more infrastructure than the, a lot of the other, the rest of the reservation. So it, the numbers are potentially higher. So when you have these problems and, and, and you, people are coming up with these solutions of, you know, desalinization and all these things, it's like, well, we don't have the electricity to run your desalinization plant. Mm-hmm. So that's why this uh, solar nanofiltration project is big because it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you don't have access to, to electricity, you are able to, utilizing these solar panels, these battery storage capacities, you are able to filter out your water and have fresh drinking water, safe drinking water. That's awesome. And the Earthship also kind of solves for the lack of electricity, right? Yeah, and for sure. Could you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, the Earthship, I think, is um, beautiful. The sustainable housing in general is beautiful. You know, there's a couple of principles of sustainable housing, and it reduces the need for these other things just in how it's built. So instead of, um, you know, a house where you have to, like, pay for your heating and pay for your cooling, the, 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 the design of an Earthship is that it heats and cools the house naturally on its own. So there's something called passive solar or passive thermal heating, passive thermal cooling. The walls of the house are so thick that it soaks up the heat. So if you ever like walk through a park and you like you find a nice rock and you lay on it and you just like you feel the heat coming from that rock. It's because that rock's been soaking up that sun's rays for long enough that now it's able to give back, right? So the walls of the house does the same thing. It soaks up the heat during the daytime, which then leaves your house cooler because the heat's getting soaked up. And then at nighttime, when that temperature drops 
and then the air is now colder than the tires, that releases the heat back into the house. So as opposed, again, so instead of having to turn on the AC or turn on the heat, um, your house is kind of automatically keeping it at a certain temperature. So supposedly it never gets below um, 68 degrees and never gets above like 82. And you are able to add in things like a wood stove. So in the wintertime, if it does get really, really cold, you know, you can add some wood in there, but it still takes way less resources than a traditional conventional you know, studs and drywall house. Right. That's awesome. So I guess I got two more questions for you. Cause I know, I know I said it was gonna be a mini episode, so I don't want to uh, <laughs> ask you too many, but if people are listening to this and they want to bring any of these solutions to their communities, like how and where should they start? For sure. They should start at home in their own community. Um, again, these issues aren't like yeah, it's coming to a bunch of our communities, and and a lot of us like we keep on thinking it's like over there or like oh like how am I going to help like the, like help the Indians or how am I going to help like these like like poor black folk? And it's like if you look at your own home, right? If you look in your own community, you'll see either if you are a part of the problem or if you will soon be on the receiving end of the problem, right? Yeah. Um, and that's and I think about how again being from growing up in New York. A couple of years ago, they had this huge fight in the Catskills. They started; they were about to start fracking in the Catskills, and the Catskills is where the majority of New York City gets its fresh water from. And it was a huge blow up. But that's what people have been dealing with in these different communities for a long time, right? And that's what these, these again, especially indigenous communities, have been saying for a long time. And when you start looking at it like that, you realize that again, like the fight is right here at home. And I think that like things like that are really important. You know, California. You look at um what is it, PMG or PG&E. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like the, like the, the things that they're doing in terms of cutting off power to like poorer communities. And, you know, we're looking at how like um, um, people are starting to like subsidize or, or like, like rich people are starting to pay for their own like private firefighters to like fight these wildfires and things like that. Like, like the, again, this, the problem is coming closer and closer to home um, for all of us. Right. So if people want to look into like how this, like, you know, how to best support, I would say like, look, Look at what, like what, what role are you playing in this larger problem that you see? Yeah, uh, I, th- I love what you said too. It's like you know, check. You're either you might be a part of the problem, or you might very soon be on the receiving end of the problem, and that's super real. Um, I guess the the kind of like capstone question that we ask every person who comes on the show is, in your opinion, given all of the all the realities that we're facing right now, um, what do we need now? What's the what what would be the the most important thing, if you had to choose one, yeah, that's a deep question. Um, I, yeah, I think we have to be okay with change. Mm. My my mother in law says that people want things to change, but no one wants to change. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was just like really profound in terms of you know, there's a lot of this like like voicing a need to take a step, or you know, a lot of this like we need to do better. But the second that, you know, those things come, if it doesn't, once it makes people start to feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. they pull back against it. And I think that that, that that pulling back is what continues to have us be in the same place. Um, when you look at race relationships in America, right? Like there's nothing anyone is saying now that wasn't said 80 years ago, right? So, so what is it? that's made us be in the same exact place. And to, at least in my opinion, it's that, it's that, 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 that pulling back once you start to see what the, what this new world can look like mm-hmm. for me, like that, that, that's it. Just being open to this change and, and then like, again, going after it. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, once again, I want to say thank you for for joining the show. I really appreciate your perspective and um, probably want to have you on here again at some point. So um, thank you. Cool. Rico, thanks a lot. Um, I'll tell you, man, Janine, my partner, she is like 20 times better than me. Um, so if you ever have anything that you uh, want to have an educated voice on, I'd be more than happy to, to connect you. I would love to. I would love to have her. Yeah, for sure. We want to give another huge shout out to Kern Collymore for being here today and for sharing his work with us. And a shout out to you for listening to another mini-sode. If you want to learn more about Earthships and water filtration and all the work that Sixth World is doing, please check out sixth-world.com. That's S-I-X-T-H hyphen W-O-R-L-D.com. We will be back next month with our season finale, which you do not want to miss. In the meantime, please like, comment, share, subscribe, and we will see you next time on What We Need Now.